Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Do you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black? That's correct. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benjamin J, take it away. <laughs> bonus time on the Ben. Never called me Benjamin J before. Benjamin J Rabbit. Switching uh, it bonus up. Time the ben, ben, bonus time on the Ben Jarosky Show as I speak. It's Friday, July 24, 2020. But of course, you're listening to this anytime. As I always do, I read uh, headlines from the newspaper so the folks use them now go, oh my God, that's what's going on. I got the New York Times in front of me. So there's three articles that are relevant to the discussion I'm about to have. Three articles that are relevant. One is uh, the main article in the New York Times on the 24th of July, uptick in claims, hints at retreat in jobs recovery. Yeah, 1.4 million new filings unemployment, a painful black side, backslide, excuse me, as a $600 a week bonus is set to run out. Unemployment rising, Donald Trump doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Ugh, America, great job electing a president. How about this headline? Trump cancels party conclave in Jacksonville. What a dumb idea to have the thing in the first place. And now nobody's showing up. Trump's like, ah, I, have it, I, I think I'll cancel it. And then finally, this one, this, as everybody knows, is my favorite story of the day. Cohen is target of retaliation of judge rules. Michael D. Cohen was mayor, excuse me, was uh, president Trump's clown, buffoon, gopher, and he finally had enough, and he won a little victory in court yesterday, and uh, I frankly love it. All right, now it's time to uh, for my distinguished guest, my bonus guest, to introduce himself. As we always do, I ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves. So introduce yourself, distinguished guest. Thank you, Ben. Great to be back on the show. Uh, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University right here in Chicago. And um, I'm a writer at The Week and Informed Comment, and I just released a book called The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And it's uh, yes. cool. we'll be back on the show. Uh, yeah, and I have been talking about this book all week. The Kids Are All Left. I have a copy of the book in front of me. It's uh, very informative and very funny. David Ferris is showing off his humor and wit in uh, this book. Before we go any uh, further, I have to share this one thing with you, David, that I, I teased you about. This is pretty funny, I thought. Uh, David is a big baseball fan. He's a Philadelphia Phillies fan. And uh, that's very obvious if you read The Kids Are All Left because it opens with a baseball metaphor uh, that's absolutely appropriate for the Republican Party. Uh, but where is it? Here we go. There's a um, Donald last night. Or was it the other? Uh, yeah, last night, uh, Dr. Fauci threw out the first pitch at a Washington Nationals game and the pitch didn't do very well. I'm not making what up to follow Donald Trump, who was so competitive and so 
whacked out of his mind has since announced that he is going to uh, throw out the first pitch at a Yankees Red Sox game. I can't believe either team would want anything to do with Donald Trump, but there will be no fans in the stands, so uh, he won't get booed unless it's the players booing him, which is always a possibility. Uh, But they're taking odds. Uh, This is David. I thought you would get a kick out of this. Odds makers are taking bets. Donald Trump announcing we're throwing out the ceremonial pitch when the Red Sox face the Yankees. Will Trump's first pitch make it over the plate? And there's odds on that. Uh, Will Trump throw from the mound? Must have at least one foot on the dirt or rubber. Will Trump wear a mask while throwing out the first pitch? No, you know he's not. I'm too vain. Uh, And uh, here's the one that Trump really cares about. Uh, Will Trump do a better job than Fauci at throwing out the... I think Trump's doing this whole thing, David, to show that he's better at throwing the ball than Fauci. What do you think? Yeah, it's obviously just a little bit of a one-upsmanship here. And he's the only reason, obviously, the only reason this is happening is because there's no crowds at the baseball games, because otherwise it would be like a cacophony of, of booze. (laughs) <laughs> you would be able to hear from from Ohio, you know, um, and uh, I, I feel like just just imagining President Trump trying to throw a baseball uh, to another human being just feels like it's going to be like a Michael Dukakis in the tank moment um, where everybody's like, you are the most absurd person I've ever seen in my whole life. Uh, I expect the pitch to fall about 45 feet short. Um, and then can you imagine like when he's so he's not going to get the ball over the plate, right? That seems really obvious to me. Uh, even if he stands like three feet from the catcher, he's not going to be able to do it. Uh, and then we're going to be treated to like a week of like, uh, you know, Trump like gaslighting us about it. Like I, I threw the greatest pitch that's ever been thrown in the history of mankind. <laughs> you know, like I did better than Fauci, you know, like, <laughs> more great. And like Kaylee McEnany will get up on, in, the, in the press conference the next day with like two videos of, of, of Trump throwing the ball, like in comparison with Fauci. It's going to dominate an entire news cycle. It's incredible. Yeah. By the way, uh, before, well, you just said something that triggered something in my head. So before we get to the kids are all left, which we'll get to uh, obsessive behavior by Trump, uh, the cognitive test. I (laughs) in a weird way, David, I mean, in a weird way, I will miss the Trump presidency because it certainly is different. Donald Trump took the cognitive test. Uh, we've made so many, just since the last time you were on the show, I've been making so many jokes about this test, which is a test to see if you have, if you have dementia. It's not like a test like, I'm in David Ferris's political science class. I better go study to see what year did the American Revolution begin so I get it right. You know, who was the president when the Civil War began? Who did Lincoln run against in 1830? You know, it's not like, no, it's a test. It's like a basic test to see if you have dementia. And he he's going, I aced it. And he's, he won't drop it, David Ferris. He keeps saying saying he just did it with chris wallace it's uh it's incredible um i don't know if you follow this uh this sarah cooper on, on twitter who does the oh yeah like, uh, lip sync stuff uh, yeah it's just incredible like her rendering of, of, the, of his him talking about this during the wallace interview when he was like man woman you know car he's like and then they asked me again, you know, like in the interview, could I remember these five words? And I did it, you know, he's the first person to ever do anything like, like no one has ever aced a cognitive test before, you know, not until me. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just hilarious. He's such a, he's such a thirsty 
like little Muppet, you know, like he just, he just has to have and be surrounded by adoration and like little quizlings, you know, like he uh, would make a, like a great like dictator of a, of a country about to, about to descend into, into total madness, you know? Um, and I do think people don't give him enough credit for being unintentionally funny. You know, <laughs> he is, he does provide like just hours of uh, <laughs> accidental humor to America yeah. that, that will legitimately be like the only thing that I miss about him is like, uh, you know, you wake up every day and you like, you boot up like Twitter or the New York times and you're like, what horrible things have happened, but also like, what thing can I have? Like just a, better life? <laughs> yeah, you know, like what stupid thing did the president do today? Yeah. Like, really, like deeply hilarious because he's such an idiot. No, you're so dumb people in the country. He's like one of the dumbest people in the whole country. That that you're that moment in the Chris Wallace interview where he's bragging about the test, and Chris Wallace goes, "I took the test. It's not a. They ask you, can you identify an elephant? And and instead of just bowing to reality and, and just moving on, he doubles down. Oh no." Yeah, that you took the easy. Those last five questions were really hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look, I gotta tell you, I have a two-year-old. You know, um, and my two-year-old knows what an elephant is, and, and he can he can he calls them Ellie's. You know, so it's a slightly different. Um, but but a two-year-old can identify animals, right? Like it's not he has not. I have no idea why he even started talking about this. Like, what is wrong with him? You know, like, do you want the conversation in the country to be about whether you are cognitively able to do the job that you are elected to do? If not. Don't take a cognitive test and don't talk about it on a national interview. What's wrong with this guy? He's well, just a little crazy. I think he believes, and this ties into uh, the upcoming election, I think he believes that this is his strength against Biden and that this is a theme that they were pushing. And he's not abandoning this theme that Biden has gone around the bend. And so that the country is going to be afraid to vote for Joe Biden on the grounds that Biden has lost his mind or has dementia. And so that will be Trump's winning card, even if he sounds demented while he's saying it. Yeah, I mean, I guess like, welcome to America's nursing home. You know, I mean, I guess that's what this election is gonna be about. Um, and uh, it's not it's not working for him because Joe Biden, once you once you get Joe Biden out of the context of the Democratic debates, he actually sounds he sounded much better over the last few months. Um, I, I don't know if he's, you know, like taking Claritin D before all of his interviews, or something, but, he, but he definitely sounds better than Trump does right now. So this is like not a comparison that, that's going to work for the president. Um, and it's, it's like extremely puzzling to me that he still thinks that, um, you know, given what's happening in the country, that people are, are, are going to you know, vote for him because they think Joe Biden is demented. It's just, uh, uh, it's crazy. Well, uh, this is a perfect transition to talk about the kids are all left. You said, welcome to America's nursing home. You're talking about Biden versus Trump. Who is the least demented of the two will be the pivotal question that voters will decide on. Uh, but your book is dedicated to the theme that in reality, Americans are moving left. Uh, younger Americans are moving left. And the, the theme of the book is that, well, ultimately, this is a disastrous change for the Republican Party uh, for many different reasons. Uh, and yet the Republican Party shows uh, no signs of taking it seriously. Your opening 
uh, uh, your opening metaphor about uh, the Republican Party as the ba- American as the baseball, uh, the Major League Baseball is so illustrative. Talk a little bit about how the Republicans are so clueless about these demographic changes that you allude to in your book. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so you know, I, I don't think it's a secret that that right now. Republican political power depends on on older voters, you know, older white voters, um, and that as those older white voters like sort of depart from the scene um, by unnatural causes, uh, that, that the party might be in some trouble. Um, what's what's kind of I think not widely understood um, is that it's not it's not just today's eighteen year olds that hate the Republican. Um, it's like basically at this point everybody under the age of forty five. Um, and that means that the whole millennial generation is is very sharply democratic leaning. Um, the, the the these Generation Z folks, those people born after 1996, are also are also sharply democratic uh, leaners. You know, and um, so that creates you know roughly I don't know like a 25 or 30 year swath of the electorate that is voting for Democrats by double digits more than the electorate as a whole. Um, and I, I don't think anybody, I don't think there's a lot of people that would really recognize what's happening. Um, and there's particularly nobody in, in, inside the Republican Party doing strategy um, that, that recognizes the problem and, and thinks that the party needs to appeal to these younger folks. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's shocking to me um, that you could look at, so the exit polls from 2018, the midterms, um, 18 to 29 year old voters went for Democrats 67 to 32. Um, that's just a, that's a margin that you've only seen once or twice in the whole history of the, of the polling era for a, for a specific subgroup of voters. Um, and it, it should, it should be terrifying to Republican elites, but it's, but it's apparently not because they're not making any changes to their party platform or to their, their sort of cultural attitude. Um, you, you can see this over the last few months, um, where, where the party is leaning into this, like, uh, really sort of like bloodthirsty law and order message that is like I, I couldn't emphasize enough like so repellent um, to, to voters under the age of 30 um, and, the, and the party just seems set on a sort of like doubling down on this dying white majority and the, and the grievances of that dying white majority um, it's a it's a sort of like spectacular sort of like Hindenburg failure to, to behold um, it'll also be like super satisfying <laughs> um, when these young voters like kind of kick these people out of office finally um, but it, but it, it remains a great mystery of our time why no one in the party um, wants to like kind of have a, like a serious conversation about like you know we don't even have to win eighteen to twenty nine year olds right but could we keep the margin down to like ten points and they just don't seem to care you know like they're they're counting on these older uh, white voters to deliver them another four years um, during which time they can finish like dismantling American democracy and uh, the, the the coronavirus thing has like really counterfeited that strategy by turning old people against the Republicans, which is like such a <laughs> such a staggering feat uh, uh, of self-owning uh, on, on the Republican Party's part. Um, but that's the that's kind of where we are. Uh, when you talk, you mentioned earlier uh, that uh, the younger generation, I think the word you used was hate. I don't know if, it, uh, is, if it's that strong, but let's just use that word. Why do they hate Republicans so much? Well, I think it's important to divide the under 45 set into two primary groups, um, one of which is millennials, you know, that's a folks born between 1981 and 1996, um, and, then the, and then the Zoomers who, who come after that. The, the, the millennial tendency to support Democrats over Republicans, um, you know, I, I don't want to like oversell this, right? Like millennials 
don't love Democrats, right? But like nobody loves nobody loves the Democrats, right? But like they, they you know they turn out for them. Um, but uh, but their their tendencies are, are pretty they're explicable by existing understandings of, of politics and, uh, and and voting behavior, right? Which is that like when millennials were coming of age, like their their first couple of elections. Um, the country was being plunged into two distinct and, 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 and massive catastrophes by President George W. Bush. Right? So uh, you had the Iraq War, which was a was an elective uh, conflict that we that we threw ourselves into for no particular reason other than the, uh, that we elected an idiot uh, in 2000, um, and that you know that has cost us two trillion dollars so far. Um, if you if you, com- if you combine the costs of the, Afghan- the the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. Um, it is more it, like the, those costs are higher than the total value of all of the oil imported into the United States since 1980. Mm. Um, and so young people are like, well, this is this is correct. Like, why did we do that? And then, it would, and then the Great Recession. Right. So these were two crises that happened within four years of each other when most millennials were, were in their early 20s um, and, and sort of like completing their process of political socialization. And so it's not it, it's not surprising at all that those voters are, are probably permanently um, Democratic leaning. Right. The big mystery, actually, at this point, is like, you know, uh, just rewind history to like before COVID, okay? Um, when we had a, you know, we had a, a economy that was, you know, working pretty well for, for a lot of people, not everyone, right? But, but like, you know, if you just look at the data, like the economy was in good shape. Um, and that should, uh, according to all of our understandings in political science, that should have turned 18 year olds, incoming 18 year olds, um, sort of in favor of Republicans and against Democrats, right? And that, that just wasn't that wasn't happening even before COVID, um, and, and that that problem has been accelerated. And that's that's the big sort of one of the big mysteries I'm trying to explain in the book um, is why the youngest voters, you know, not millennials, right? Millennials are are just, first millennials are about to turn forty, um, mm-hmm. but like the uh, these youngest voters, why are they so sharply Democratic? Um, and that's really only explainable by uh, just this huge disjuncture between what young people want and believe and what the National Democratic Party is is advocating for. So on everything from climate change to, to health care to taxation to, to racial justice to same-sex marriage, like all of this stuff, the Republican Party is just so deeply out of step with what this youngest generation believes that it's going to be just, uh, just a massive uphill climb for them to even come within 20 points of, of, of Democrats in a national election with this group of voters. Um, yeah. Another issue you address uh, in the book when you're talking about these trends is uh, the notion that many people have that this is a passing fancy for younger people. Uh, so that old line about when you're young, you're a socialist uh, and when you're older, you abandon that uh, is something a myth that uh, you address quite forcefully in, uh, uh, in the book. So talk about that, whether this notion that people have that, oh, well, don't worry, young people will become conservative as they go older. Yeah, um, this, this myth is really like, was really the impetus for me writing the book. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it's like personal for me in a way. Um, my, my dad, who, who I love dearly, is a wonderful man uh, and, a, and a wonderful father to me, but he was, um, uh, he was a Marxist. <laughs> in the 70s um and then he is now a, you know like a, a republican leaning independent um who, who has like just dramatically changed his views about, about a lot of things during his life and he, he might not characterize it that way right um and if we had him on the show i'm, I'm sure he would be able to to capably defend um his, his transition um but i think that there's a you know there's an assumption out there in the popular culture it's like folk wisdom that that transformation that my dad went through is, is common 
um, that, that it's like, it's normal for young people to be super liberal. And then as they, you know, uh, they buy houses and they have kids and they get sort of like uh, embroiled in, in, the, in the economic system that we have in the, in the United States, that they will naturally become more conservative. Um, and, and one of the reasons I wrote this book was um, to sort of to puncture that myth with social science, with, with everything that we know um, based on, on polling data, um, based on surveys that have taken place in the past, based on trends in party ID, um, that's like which party you identify with, um, that there's really uh, almost no evidence <laughs> to support the idea um, that, that young folks get older as they age. There's also, um, you know, there's not a lot of data in the record to suggest that, that young people have always been liberal. Um, so, you know, it's worth noting that, like, Dwight Eisenhower won the youngest voters twice, uh, Richard Nixon won them, Ronald Reagan won them. As recently as 2000, um, George W. Bush and Al Gore split the youth vote, 47 to 47. Um, so it's just not true um, that, that young people have always been so so liberal like this. Um, so in, in fact, what's happening in the polling era that is like, you know, that was, we, we, we got to scientific polling in, in, in the you know, late 30s, early 40s. Um, and there's just, there's no pattern like this that, that I can see in the data that we have from, from all of the different surveys that are out there, um, where you have this like long sort of like double generation of people who lean really sharply um, in one direction, um, you know, like much more so than the rest of the electorate. Um, and uh, so... <laughs> Anyway, it, what, you know, what, what the social science says is that um, once you form your political views, which happens, you know, um, in your adolescence and then in your early 20s, it's like really actually quite hard to shake you from those views. Um, and in fact, your, your partisanship generally tends to harden as you get older, um, rather than like you're going to wake up one day and decide that you, you, you hate taxes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and not that I care in any way. Uh, I have very, I kind of think in... The total totality of my life, have I ever really cared about the Republican Party? And the answer is no. But so not that I care in any way, but what uh, do you think Republicans can can do to uh, reverse these trends? Or are they just going to fade away uh, into oblivion like the Whig Party? I mean, you know, if you really wanted to save the Republican Party, what you would do is you would take every single Republican in Congress and the president, all the president's advisors and all of his members of cabinet, um, and you would just disappear them in some sort of like reverse rapture for jerks and, um, you know, replace them with people who care uh, about appealing to voters under the age of 45. Um, you know, two, a couple of big things they could do if they, if they really wanted to, to reverse some of these trends. Um, they, they have to get away from climate denialism. You know, yeah. um, that is the the the, the warming of, of the planet and the, all the disasters that are going to happen as a consequence of that is a is a huge issue for young people. You know, like it's like it's all it's been so long since all of us have been young that it's hard to remember. But you, you know, when you when you're coming of age politically, you, you kind of look around the world and you're like, why do things work like this? You know, like what are like what are my parents thinking? Like what are my grandparents thinking? Um, and what they see, you know, is is a political elite that is presiding over a, a slow-moving catastrophe, uh, doing absolutely nothing about it, worse than doing absolutely nothing about it. They're denying that it's happening, right? Uh, I don't know if you've been outside recently, um, <laughs> but it's, it's hot as hell out there, man. It's yeah. the, have the, the warmest year in human history, again, right? Um, and, so, and so young folks are like uh, being brought into this world um, that they had, you know, they had no agency in creating 
Um, and then being told by the people that created this awful world um, that what is obviously happening in front of their eyes is not actually happening. Um, and so the, the, the climate crisis is, is such a huge issue for young people. It's even a huge issue for young Republicans. Um, and it's something that has the potential to split, you know, to, to make the margins with young people even worse. Um, because at a certain point, those, those young Republican voters who might be conservative on economic matters but, but believe in the climate crisis um, are going to say, like, you know, and actually um, having a world that my kids can live in is probably more important than my marginal tax rate. Um, and, they, and they might act accordingly. So they got to get real about climate change. They got to they got to clean out of the party. All of these people um, who don't believe it's real and replace them with people who do. Um, and I, I just don't see how that's going to happen. Um, the other thing is they have to be able to they have to figure out a way to appeal to to, to racial minorities. Um, they have to find a way to appeal to African Americans. They have to find a way to appeal uh, to, to Latinos. And um, if they don't do that, they're really screwed because the, the millennial and the generation. And, and the Zoomers are the are the most the two most diverse generations of Americans um, that, that have ever, ever ever existed in this country, um, and you know they can hold their margins with white people right where they are, and they're still they're still going to get you know like, like buried under this uh, tsunami of, of younger diverse voters because those voters are correctly perceived that the Republican Party um, has has sort of yoked itself to this. Uh, you know, um, this sort of open white supremacy, and they, they don't want any part of it. Um, so they like if, if I could if I if a Republican strategist came in and was like, what are two things I can do? I just want two things that we can do to change. Um, Got to get real about climate. Um, you, you have to stop being racist. <laughs> um, and if they don't do that, uh, and I don't I don't see how that's going to happen, um, given who's in power nationally for the Republicans. Um, if they don't do that, they're going to continue to lose these cohorts by by double digits. And as those cohorts age into higher rates of turnout, um, Republicans are going to start losing elections by, by double digits. Now, they might lose an election by double digits this year, um, but it's, that's probably driven mostly by, by the COVID and the economic crisis. But um, in 2024 or 2028, um, that's going to be very different. I think Republicans will lose elections decisively, even in, in sort of like good times, because they're so repulsive to, to these young voters who are... Um, pretty, pretty soon going to be the majority of the electorate. Well, I, I'm going to marry your two books together and uh, or the two books of yours that I've read. Uh, it's Time to Fight Dirty was uh, the book that uh, introduced me to David Ferris. And uh, in that book, you lay out uh, how the system is set up to benefit the Republicans, even though they don't have a majority of the voters. Uh, and so when I think about what you're just saying, how Republicans are... Uh, have positioned themselves where they're going to go out of existence because of their racist, uh, anti-scientific worldviews. Uh, I think back to the themes in your first book, where the whole system, to use Trump's word, is rigged to benefit the Republicans. So there's no accountability for their boneheaded policies. There's no consequences for their racist behavior. As such, they feel safe to keep repeating it. And they still hold the Senate because we have this crazy system where Wyoming gets as many senators as California. I'm not quite sure why we have that system. And they hold on to the presidency. Right now, the God's makers, David, are not really ready to go for Biden because even though he'll probably win by 10 percentage points in the popular vote, there's a possibility that those Michigan swing voters. (laughs) So we have a crazy system. 
yeah. which is work. The Republicans short term, it works to their advantage. They got a, they got their guy Trump elected. They control. They got the Senate. But ultimately, what you're telling me is because they have this false confidence, it's going to lead to their extinction. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Republican power right now rests on on two things. You know, it rests on differential rates of turnout for, for older white Americans who, who tend to vote more than, than everybody else does, um, and it rests on these these like. Uh, just ridiculous sort of like anti-majoritarian features of the U.S. constitutional order. Um, that's the Senate. That's the Electoral College. That's the way we like the House. Um, it's it's all the uh, you know the um, the chicanery with uh, with voting rights. You know, um, and so you know it's really important. You know, if Biden wins, if Democrats take the Senate, um, it's a, it's extremely important. For, for the party to address those problems as a, as a major priority once they are in office. Um, because, you know, yes, young people trend sharply Democratic and they trend sharply left. Um, but if you're thinking about 2022 or 2024, um, the Zoomers are still not going to turn out at, at the same levels as, as older people are. Um, and when turnout among millennials and Zoomers drops, that's, that's where you see um, you know, Republicans able to sort of like cling to power with, with white knuckles um, by uh, by virtue of, of the system itself, um, and so I, I still uh, there's, there's yeah a couple of people have said there's a little bit of tension between um, what you wrote and it's time to fight dirty where it's like we gotta you know we gotta make all these urgent changes and then the kids are all left where I'm like you know if you, if you look at the long term like Republicans are really screwed it's like this there's this short term period of eight to ten years um, where this, these conservative boomers will still be with us and and, and you know, like staggering out to vote from, from Applebee's for, for the next 20 years. Um, and, uh, Applebee's, sorry. Yeah. Uh, with wings, let me vote for You know, like they're being waited on by someone in a fish shield and, and, and gloves, and they're like, I had to get out of the house. And like, sorry. Um, but, you know, those voters going to be with us for a while. And so they could still win elections, um, national elections, if Democrats don't address these structural problems with the democracy, you know. Um, and so I'm still as committed as I was two years ago to um, D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood, maybe in U.S. Virgin Islands and, and expanding the Supreme Court. All, all this stuff is really critical if Democrats want to capitalize on, on the victory that looks pretty likely um, they're, they're going to get in, in, in November. Um, and uh, they, they also have to um, they have to govern in a way that will reward the young voters for supporting them. You know, and that means addressing things like the student loan crisis. Um, that means really getting real about about climate change, um, and, and really making sure that they, you know, they govern in a way um, that that will make it less likely that young voters will just like sit out 2022 and 2024, because um, these are actually really critical years um, before these younger leaning generations have uh, a clear demographic turnout advantage in national elections, um, you know, which which will happen in 2028 and 2032. Um, but there's this like liminal zone in between where it's like you could see Republicans miracling a couple of victories, which would be really disastrous. I uh, reward younger voters for voting for them. Uh, that's pivotal. I wrote that down. I know, for, that. for the Democrats. I know. Wow. The voters who voted for you, the things that they wanted. Yeah. It's so crazy. And that goes against what Democrats do. What Democrats generally do is they ask their base to vote for them. And then as soon as they're in office, they ask their base to shut up. 
and not ask for anything so that we can appease like the five percent of the republicans that went for that's rahm emanuel democratic strategy bill clinton he learned it from billy c that has prevailed david ferris since you voted in your first election that has been the governing strategy of the smartest brains in the democratic party and we wonder why they managed to lose so many elections when all these demographic trends are in their favor this this is such a disaster and like to continue the baseball thing the Democratic Party for the last, like, 26 years um, has been like somebody at a White Sox game where, um, you know, you buy tickets in, in the upper deck and then you realize that there's, like, no one um, guarding the front row seats and you go and you sit in the front row seats, but you get there and you're like, you can't enjoy yourself. And you're like, what if we get thrown out? Like, what if the usher comes and, and like, puts us back in the 700 level? Like, what, what will we do? And you, like, you, 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 you freak yourself out, you know? And you're like, we should, just, we should just go back to our seat. We should just go back to our seats in the, in the upper deck. You're like, I, I, I don't want to take the risk. I don't want to take the risk. You know, and it's like, no one's coming for you, man. Like, just, just enjoy the game. You know, like you won. You won the election. Do the thing that you said you would do. You know, pass card check unionization. Like, what are you waiting for? Um, so anyway, I hope that spirit of, of aggressiveness and, and, and like confidence in, in, the, in the very real uh, situation where we, we do have a Democratic majority in this country. I, I hope that Biden and the Democrats like, um, you know, can sort of like act differently than they have for, the, for, for my adult lifetime and sort of press their advantage and, and pass the policies that we think need to be passed, um, level the playing field. Uh, and then and then if they do that stuff, they will see the young people will come out for them. Yeah. And uh, address Electoral College immediately. Uh, you pointed that you opened my eyes with this uh, in It's Time to Fight Dirty. Uh, 2000, George Bush won, even though he lost. Immediately, the Democrats should have addressed the electorate. Immediately, but not the Democrats, not my beloved Democrats. Oh, oh, we don't see any problem. And then they lose it in two, th- and they're still not addressing it. And uh, so I have no faith. I want to be optimistic, David. I'm just, we're going to move on. I have no faith uh, in the, the older faction, that worthless baby boomer generation. Been really hard on the baby boomers lately, David. I'm working things out. I usually use my therapist here. What a worthless generation. And I read your book. You were way too nice to them, by the way. In your book, you alluded, well, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, baby boomers uh, were, they were, young. they were liberal when they were young. I'm like, I'm reading that book and writing in the margins. They just didn't want to get drafted and sent to Vietnam. As soon as the draft ended, they became the most selfish bunch of worthless voters. They elected Ronald Reagan. They elected George Bush. They doubled down with baby Bush, who was even worse than George Bush. They wouldn't have elected Clinton. I got news for you, David, if it wasn't for Ross Perot. Let's just be honest about that. So a completely, utterly, totally worthless generation, the baby boomer generation, so spoiled and so selfish uh, that, and they elected Trump. Let's put some icing on the cake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, with my, my dear parents accepted um, when the last baby boomer, like, draws their final breath, like, their final breath on this earth. I'm going to have like the biggest party of my life. <laughs> well, wait till I, not for me. I'm a baby. I say this as a baby boom. I'm like a self-hating baby boomer. It's a worthless generation. They like, you know, the baby boomers as a generation are like, uh, they're like Jared Kushner, you know, where it's like, 
they were born into like, unimaginable prosperity, and then they did like everything that they possibly could to screw it up, um, and and to prevent anyone else from enjoying that prosperity. Yeah. It's, it's just like incredible. You know, it's like they were born into this world where you could go to college like essentially for free. Um, you know, like like rich people were taxed. Like there was a limited amount of intergenerational wealth transfer, um, and you had this like great prosperity in the country, and they, they took that. And this is like the, the world that like. The, this horrible era that we're breathing right now is like the, the world that the boomers have bequeathed to us. Um, and of course, there's there's millions of, of wonderful boomers out there, um, but but as a whole, the, I'm talking yeah, as a whole. I'm talking about as a whole. Yeah, whole, I'm, I'm with you. Nightmare. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. I'm with you a hundred percent, and I'm really I have high faith in the millennials. And let's move to my favorite political millennial at the moment. I call her my congresswoman, okay? She's my congresswoman, yeah. AOC. I know literally she's in New York. Uh, I also extol the virtues of Nancy Pelosi, and boy, do I get ripped by my lefty listeners for that. Uh, she's sort of my congresswoman. It's kind of weird that I love AOC and Nancy Pelosi. I'm a weird guy, David. You're getting to know that. It's a very thin Venn diagram there. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's out there. You know, people are out there that love them both. Uh, I do love them both for different, vastly different reasons. AOC's speech yesterday, I'd love to get your take on it. It's so generational. Um, just to, to tell people, just to, I, most of my listeners know because they really follow this stuff. But uh, uh, what was, I forget, I'm blanking on his name. Yoho, a state uh, a congressman from uh, Florida, is it? Uh, completely oh, insulting her. Florida, ben. Of course it's Florida. Where else? Florida. Florida, you are the states. What baby boomers are to generations, okay? Exactly. All right, so take it from there. Uh, what do you think about how AOC handled it? I mean, I, I thought it was an incredible performance. You know, um, you know, AOC is uh, she's a very talented pop- politician. You know, I mean, if she were if she were a white dude in her fifties and she was this good at politics, you know, um, it, it, it would be having a very conver- a different conversation. And you know, she she took this abuse from um, this this uh, Ted Yahoo. What was the Yahoo? Yeah, whatever. Yoho. He's just a it's a a guy I follow on Twitter called it. Uh, the a-hole factory of Florida that, 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 that produces these guys, you know, just like an endless churning out. these like ridiculous people, you know, like Matt, Matt Gates and, and they're just like ridiculous people. And he did, you know, he messed with the wrong person, right? Uh, like he, he decided he would just be verbally abusive in a misogynist way to AOC. Um, and she was like, uh, not only am I not going to take that, I'm going to take it to the floor of the house. And um, since the beginning of her tenure in office, she has been, um, really a, a unique voice in Congress um, where she, she, you know, in the same way that young people, they come, they look around the world and they're like, what, you know, like, what the hell is this? Like, why does it work like this? You know, she went into the house and she was like, why is my first meeting in the house with a bunch of lobbyists who, who, who are hired by my own party to train me about how to be a Congress, a Congress person, you know? Um, and so her, her speech was in keeping with that sort of like, you know, I'm not going to accept business as usual in this chamber. You know, like I'm not going to get abused by this by this this rich idiot from Florida, uh, and just be silent about it. I'm going to give a speech, and I'm going to like I'm going to dismantle him in public. Um, and that that style of politics, that sort of like um, we are not going to accept the, the broken world as it is, um, is is actually really representative of, of young people overall, right? Like, I mean, not not everyone, right? It's like, so important to know uh, that you know if you're winning millennials 67 to 32, um, that's still like you know tens of millions of people 
Yeah. Who are country, right? Like they're out there, right? There's young people <laughs> who are freaking country, right? But like you gotta look at these things in the aggregate, you know? Um in the aggregate, um young younger Americans look at AOC as as their you know, as their voice, right? Like somebody who's like, this society is broken. Um, there are obvious solutions that are out there. We're too lazy or too stupid to, to adopt them. Um, and, and I'm going to make it my life's work to transform this country into what it could be. Um, and, and what I what I really appreciate about AOC and, and, and uh, other members of the squad um, and just sort of like younger politicians in general um, is that they, you know, they, they don't have contempt for, for America, right? They have contempt for um, for America's failure to, to live up to what I think we are taught to believe in what kids, you know. And so you, you have this whole generation coming of age. Um, they're still reading the same nonsense textbooks they were 40 years ago. Um, you know, like the Civil War is about states' rights and this, like, this, kind, of, this kind of crap. Um, but they're coming of age and being like, no, you know, like this is not how it's going to work anymore. Um, and uh, she's, she's really turned herself into a national political star in a way that seems like just inexorably headed to her being the president someday. Mm. Um, and, uh, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier about anything because I think she's really great. And, um, you know, it just, it just melts the Republicans brains, you know, like you have these older, like, um, just, you know, um, impotent, stupid, um, greedy, uh, uh, uh venal, uh, white racists who, who just cannot stand the idea um, of a talented, you know, dynamic, hilarious, charismatic, attractive uh, 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 Latina in Congress, um, who's who's kind of the voice of her generation. It just drives them up a wall. Um, and I, I really, I'm here for that. I really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm with you 100. percent And uh, I appreciated tremendously what she did. Uh, and uh, I note that uh, in your book. I have, I have this section I want to share with you. I have been meaning to share with you because in addition to being very informative, I got to tell you folks, uh, David Ferris's book is funny uh, and it's, it's unique because it's like you're embracing your humor in a way that I've never, uh, I've ever, I should say, not say never, I don't recall a political scientist in academia embracing so embracing let me just give you an example I mean this isn't the part I'm going to say but your footnotes um, like and I'm a footnote reader I don't know if you know this so like I'm reading like where where does Ferris get where does he get off saying this so I dutifully go to the footnote page and uh, there's this one footnote that it says (laughs) it's like you're alluding to something you wrote let me see wait hold on let me set it up uh page seven hold on you go uh you're alluding to something that you uh, wrote that you got wrong i forget i can't find it and the footnote reads uh the footnote reads i have obviously not learned my lesson that's the footnote <laughs> then there's another footnote that says okay probably not but stay with me i don't even remember what that was like what kind of footnotes are these these are footnotes that you write when you when you don't believe anyone is actually ever going to go to the footnote page. So you might like you could just put a footnote that says "fuck you" and whoa! If you're reading this footnote, you're 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 an idiot. <laughs> you're an idiot. Ha ha! Jokes on you. Anyway, the book is funny, but here here's the part. <laughs> I laughed out loud at it. Please don't mistake this book as a prediction that the Republican Party won't win another election for 30 years, as much as I would like that to be true. 
while it would be awesome to get hate cited for the rest of my life as the preeminent example of a very wrong argument, <laughs> I feel obligated to issue the standard caveats that the research, the reviewers will probably ignore and that Sean Hannity's research staff almost certainly won't read. And then you go on to issue the caveats. I laughed. I go, oh, man, he's already guarding himself. Just go out and say it. My thing is, is you, take, you make the most outrageous claims in the world and if you're wrong yeah okay you know i don't know in that regard i'm the guy who predicted that walter mondale would defeat ronald reagan in 1984 in the hopes that if it happened i would be the genius okay yeah didn't work. Well, we came close you know uh, I, so uh all right so what's your prediction at the moment for the 2020 presidential election, are you going to make a definitive prediction or are you going to be like Nate Cohn of the New York Times, wavering, I'm a flag in the breeze, I don't want to say anything, I don't want to be held accountable for anything. Take a stand, Cohn. So where are you going to go? The people in a a rural Ohio diner. Uh, No, I mean, I I think that Joe Biden's going to win the election and it looks like it's going to happen pretty decisively. Um, you know, this is this is human affairs, so it's you, know, you can't say with absolute certainty what's going to happen X, Y, or Z. Um, but but Biden losing at this point would be just utterly unprecedented in, in, in the history of American presidential elections, based on the lead that he has now. Um, and uh, you know, uh, the, the way that that would not happen is for is for President Trump to, to become a, a different human being all of a sudden <laughs> and do different things that he can't do. Um, and, and the Republicans in Congress just seem bent on on. Uh, I'm making people as miserable as possible, as if that's like a viable re-election strategy. Um, the other thing, I'm glad you brought up Nate Cohn. Um, you know, Nate Cohn has been hammering the idea that, that Republicans have this decisive advantage in the Electoral College for, for years now. Um, he, scared the, he scared the living daylights out of every Democrat in the country last summer when he wrote this piece that was like, Democrat, you know, like the Democratic nominee could win the election by 5 million votes and still lose the Electoral College. Um, and he seems like sort of unwilling to go where his current data is leading him, which is to say um, that that electoral college advantage seems to have vanished, right? Like that um, Biden is leading by roughly the same margin nationally as he is in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, in, in Michigan. Um, in fact, in, in Michigan in particular, he's doing, you know, Biden's doing better than he is nationally, right? So, so clearly these tipping point states have, have been transformed. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, his most recent column, I'll give him credit for, for being honest about this, which is like, um, you know, Trump is, is bleeding out support among different subgroups of white voters. Um, and that, you know, that means that his advantages in Wisconsin and, and Michigan and, and Pennsylvania are, are kind of gone, right? Because that's what they were built on. Um, I know if I, if I was on the phone with Nate Cohen, I'd be like, actually, dude, this has been obvious for like a year um, that, that uh, you know, that, that Trump can't lose the election by three points, but still, but still be reelected um, just, just based on all the polling we've seen over, over the last year. Um, and so, you know, ominously for Trump, he's down not just in those three critical states, right? But he's down uh, by some, you know, but the, the best polling shows him down double digits in Florida. Um, the best polling shows him down by, by the high single digits in, in Arizona. Um, if you look at these, and these polls never get talked about, man, but like um, polls of like South Carolina and Kentucky and Montana and Alaska, um, these red states that, you know, frankly, Biden is not likely to win. But that are that are sending us a very strong signal that the that the electorate as a whole and every single state in this country has moved against Trump. Um, that is like you know Biden's within single digits in Alaska. Um, Biden is within single digits in South Carolina. 
Um, and, and that is a world in which like all of these, you know, multiple Senate seats come into play. Um, you could see Biden winning by as much as 10 points, 11 points or something. Um, and, and that's, that's a margin that's just like too big for Republicans to overcome with their like, you know, conspiracy mongering about absentee ballots or, um, you know, the voter suppression stuff in the swing states. Like you, you, you just can't, um, you can't voter suppress and, and conspiracy your way out of a 10 point deficit. And, um, you know, normally in normal times, right, like Trump would be able to go around and do rallies and, be, you know, you have a normal Republican convention, you get a bounce out of that. Um, but none of that's going to happen, right? Like, they, you know, Trump just canceled his <laughs> uh, canceled his, his uh, convention in, in Jacksonville um, because, of course, he's an idiot. And the rest of us were like, this is never going to happen. I'm not going to happen in Florida. Uh, don't be an idiot, right? And he was like, oh, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And then it didn't at the last minute, of course. Um, and so there's really no way for him to narratively reset this race. Right? Like, it looks like the economic data coming in in July is, is bad. Um, because as everyone has been saying for months, right, like you have to get the virus under control before you can have an economic recovery. Right? And he just like refused to accept the idea that he had to get the crisis under control. Um, had he done so, we'd be having a very different conversation on this show right now. Um, but he, but he didn't. Um, and it's, it's just like we're, he's running out of time um, mm -hmm. to, to reset that narrative in any meaningful way. Yeah, well, and what do you, that's my prediction. Uh, and uh, you know, so you don't think the law and order uh, theme will work for him, where he's trying to to stir up as much hatred between blacks and whites uh, as he possibly can, and exploit uh, unrest in Portland, let's say, as best he can to scare white people and voting. You don't think that'll work for him? No, it's not working. Um, and, you know, to, to sort of like tie back into the, the theme of the episode, you know, which is that young people have very sort of different beliefs about racial justice and, and, and law and order than, than older folks do. Um, and those that those incoming generations and, and what they want and think is, has led to a real sort of like public opinion cascade um, in, in favor of, of Black Lives Matter um, and against this kind of like just wanton, you know, bloodthirsty law and order rhetoric. Um, I, I, you know, I, to be honest, I don't think that the white support for Black Lives Matter and like really real change um, in, in places like Chicago is, is as deep as it looks right now. Um, but, but nationally, the, the data is like really clear, right? Like Trump has, has stepped in it again. He's done this like over and over and over again in his presidency where, where he takes an issue, right? He takes the wrong side of it to begin with, you know? Um, that is like he takes the he takes the side uh, that has forty percent support, uh, and, he, and, he, and he opposes the side that has sixty percent support, and then by by the virtue of his like reverse Midas touch, um, and just being the stupidest person in America and the most venal and most repulsive jerk that you've ever met in your entire life, um, he 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 unifies Democrats um, who may not even have held those opinions before, he unifies them against whatever it is that he says and thinks, you know. Um, and so when the president is like, I'm going to send federal troops to, to Portland um, to, to, like, kidnap uh, these, like, kids who are, like, protesting outside of the courthouse or whatever, um, it's just, it's not a winning proposition in terms of national public opinion. Right? Like, what people see um, is the president using the Department of Homeland Security um, and federal agents as his, as, his, like, as his political security force, right? Like, nobody, in, you know, like, there's a lot of bad stuff happening in our city right now, right? Um, but nobody wants, like, um, Donald Trump, like nobody wants a visit from Donald Trump's goon squad, you know, like that's not the solution to our problems here, right? The solution to our problems is like a, it's like a huge conversation 
uh, about equality and, and, and racial justice. It's not about sending in guys in camouflage and masks to, to kidnap people off the street and, and keep the living daylights out of them. Um, and he's, the fact that he still doesn't understand this, and the, and the fact that none of his advisors are like, dude, this is not working, right? Like, since you, since you got on the soapbox about law and order, you have bled out five points in the polling nationally. Um, and so the fact that he's like doubling down on it, you know, sending, you know, wants to send 75,000 troops, troops, you know, I'm putting this in air quotes, which I like, you know, these aren't troops, right? But he wants to send 75,000 goons to, to various cities across the land um, and have them do, I don't know what, like, they, you know, does he really want scenes of like cities burning uh, every day from now to the election? Because he's the president, right? Like he's not Richard Nixon in 68. Um, being like, let me come in and clean up this mess. Like, this is his mess. You know? Yeah. Um, and so I just don't. I just don't think that's. I don't think it's going to work. There's, there's no polling to suggest it's going to work. Biden has held this eight to ten point lead pretty consistently for about six weeks now. Um, and it just. I don't see. I don't see any any evidence that, that the race is tightening, that the president's tactics are working, um, or, or that Biden is is uh, you know is going to blow it because Biden is mostly keeping a fairly low profile. I mean not. It's not keeping as low a profile as some of his detractors on Twitter would suggest, um, but but he's not exactly you know he doesn't want to be on TV every second of the day, and I think we pick a reason for that. So yeah, uh, <laughs> we don't want Joe Biden on TV every day. Uh, I think the next time you come on the show, you usually come on once a month. Yeah, uh, it's worked out that way. Uh, by the time you come on next, Joe Biden will have selected. His vice president, Mike. That's my guess. So let's go. Make your prediction right now. Here you go. Make and people go run to Vegas with this one because David Ferris. It's like money in the bank. Uh, so who do you, who do you think uh, Joe Biden will select as his running mate? You know, I I think from the from the get go, I think it's always been most likely that he would pick Kamala Harris. Um, and there's been a lot of reasons. I think there are some reasons not to do that. You know, um, she's not a great fit for, for the sort of the national mood around uh, around racial justice necessarily. Um, and she's, you know, she's somewhat polarizing figure nationally. Um, but I do think that she's the most prominent, um, you know, African-American woman in the Democratic Party. Um, and so it's like, it's sort of like, it just feels like a rom-com to me, you know, where it's like, you know, they, they met cute on, on the state, the debate stage at last June and they hated each other, you know, and, you know, before, before you know it, you know, they're going to, they're going to, oh, like, oh, maybe I do love you. You know, like, uh, it just seems to make sense that, you, you know, he's going to pick a high profile uh, African-American woman um, who brings a lot of star power and, and wattage to the, to the ticket. You know, do I think that's the best move to win the election? Uh, probably not, you know, Um I think if, if you were solely interested in adding to your margin in the swing states um, and you're committed to picking a woman and you don't care about race, um, then the, probably your pick is Tammy Baldwin of, of Wisconsin, um, who's, who's like pretty awesome um, and, and pretty progressive. And she would add margin, you know, she would add points to his margin in Wisconsin. Um, but there's all these other considerations about replacing her in the Senate, right? Um, I've heard Tammy Duckworth bandied about. I just feel like it's one of these things where it's, um, you know, it's going to be a will they or won't they like Ross and Rachel. And at the end of the day, um, you know, Biden is going to pick Harris. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have, I just want to win. You know, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't care that much, you know, who, who, who it is, as long as the, that person doesn't actively hurt the ticket. 
Um, but I, I also think that Biden, if you if you dug deep into some interviews with Biden and some, some writing about Biden recently, um, he's definitely not on board with this idea that he's just like a caretaker president who's going to hand off control to somebody else like five days into his presidency. Like he's, I mean, this dude has been running for president like half of his adult life. You know, yes. like he's been running for president since I was nine years old. Um, and he wants to be president. Like he doesn't, I don't think he wants to be overshadowed by someone. Um, I don't think he intends to resign five days into, into his presidency. Um, and so I, I do think that there's a sense in which, um, you know, somebody like Baldwin makes sense to him because um, she's, she's great and she would help where he needs to be helped. Um, she'd probably be uh, a, a very um, talented and, and useful sort of uh, right-hand woman in, in the administration. But she doesn't outshine him. You know, like she's not more famous than him. She's not more beloved by the base than he is. And that, that's, I think, the situation. You know, I, again, I'm not endorsing this view, right? Because uh, I love Elizabeth Warren and I, I, I want her to be president. But I think from Biden's perspective, um, if you bring in Warren as your VP, um, you have created a situation where the, you know, like the base of the Democratic Party likes your VP more than they like you. Um, and I don't know that he wants to get into that situation mm-hmm. with his VP pick. I, I'm puzzled by all the speculation about people like um, Karen Bass, and uh, I, I just don't think he's going to pick a total unknown. But um, you know, I could I could be wrong about that. All right. So your 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 selection not not for your personal choice, but your prediction, your money, put money on in Vegas is Kamala Harris. I'm with you. Uh, I think you should, though, go and say Tammy Baldwin. I'll tell you why. Because if it were to happen, everybody, my God, Ferris freaking genius, man. It'll just, it'll be, you'd be like Michael Moore, who predicted that Trump would win. Okay. Yeah. He's been riding that horse for, for I told you he was going to win. You just got to yeah, listen to me. You, I told you so. Hey, I just I, thought 250 shares in, in Tammy Baldwin on predicted.org because I'm also a maniac who gambles on politics. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you should have shared that with us. I'll let it well, that you out. Go, you got to go bet on, you can put money down on will Donald Trump reach the plate when he throws the ball? The real question is how far from the catcher will he be when he. I would go. Uh, I would go at least fifteen feet. That that pitch. Well, if he throws from the mound, we're talking at least fifteen feet. <laughs> then, like, Donald Trump throwing the ball with it. What hat is he gonna wear? He's gonna look like a doofus no matter what he does. No, uh, is in the tank. That's what Trump is gonna look like. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, he may not do it. You know, Trump's perfectly capable of backing out at the last minute and blaming. <laughs> he'll blame you. Uh, anyway, and I can't do it. I'm so sorry. Uh, I, uh, I'm with you on Kamala Harris. I think that's who he'll predict, uh, who pick. That's my prediction. And the next time you're on, we're going to uh, talk Senate seats. I've been meaning to do this. I'm going to get my list together of all the uh, seats and we'll go down it because as I keep saying, it's not enough to win the presidency. If you really want to undo the damage that uh, Donald Trump has caused, you got to get uh, control of the Senate and hold the house uh, and, and uh, so anyway, we'll have that discussion. David Ferris, the name of his book, The Kids Are All Left. It's uh, y- you learn a lot about generational politics and you also have a laugh or two because there's some funny stuff in this book. Uh, thank you very much, David. It's always fun talking to you. Uh, stay safe and sound. We'll talk to you next month. All right. All right. Thanks for the kind words, Ben. Thanks for having me on the show. It's always a blast. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.